Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories, with your host, Dr. Alexian Taki. Hi, and welcome to the third episode of Gender Stories. I'm your host, Alex Yantafi. I am incredibly excited to be interviewing Arike Aguilar today. She's a Caribbean pansexual mom and lead organizer at Take Action Minnesota. I met Arike just a few months ago, and I just kind of fell in love with her and her work. Uh, she manages the Women of Color and the Collaborators Tables for Take Action Minnesota. And when I met Tarike, was I was really excited about, well, one of the many things I was really <laughs> excited about is that you talked about political healing and work that you do around uh, acknowledging people's skills as political healers and building their skills. And I never heard that term before, so I wonder if we can get started with you telling me about political healers. Yeah, um, political healers, uh, it took us a while to get to that word, right? Um, I was hired at Take Action um, 2016, uh, right in the summer, so June. Um, We worked really hard. We didn't get the results we thought we would, right? And before Thanksgiving, I found myself doing these coffee shop dates where we'd get women of color, different women of color, to just meet up at a coffee shop and just check in, like, how are you doing? What's going on? And the overwhelming theme through all of them was exhaustion and a request to lead an intersectional leadership training where we talked about the intersection of race, gender, and healing. So they really put me to task, right? Um, And because an organizer doesn't move anywhere their base doesn't want them, right? So I got my marching orders, and the first training was January of 2017, the end of of January. Um, My leaders, we were all like, oh, you know what would be like really, really just spectacular is if we got 50 women of color to like show up. But, like, we were secretly okay with 30. Mm -hmm. Um, So we just kind of, like, we were all right with that. Uh, Over 80 women of color showed up to that training. Um, And these were women of color. These were young women of color. These were... We had youth there. We had... um, We had EDs, Mm -hmm. executive directors. We had people from all walks of life, right? Um, So it was an interesting room. And I trained on... What we later figured out was like a coping mechanism, mm-hmm. right? And we and the beauty the beauty about it was that we figured it out together. I'm in a room with over 80 women of color, and I introduce a thought to them, right? Like, here's a line of conversation, and then there's a box where it expands. It's like this is where you complicate the conversation mm-hmm. and make it more inclusive about things, and then I like erase the square and make it align again is like this process of the square going down that's negotiation moment Mm. but are you the one collapsing it 
Or are you waiting for other people to collapse it and are unsatisfied with the <laughs> with the, with what comes yeah. out of it, the next step? Um, all, all feels pretty cheesy. We were like, we'll call it the accordion theory because I love it. <laughs> but, you know, just really, really trying to get a handle on, like, organic intellectuality. Like, what are we going to make with each other? Like, we know about this, right? We know mm-hmm. our experiences can lead us in this. And the most important lesson there that we walked away from from that training was, do you know the difference between a space that will validate you and a space that won't mm. and that a lot of our exhaustion came from expecting a space to validate us that never will yes so that was that was definitely we we figured that out together in conversation in mm-hmm. plenary like mm-hmm. we're all just kind of talking and trying to figure this out so that was the major lesson so then we, um, I was like, all right, go experiment for the summer, kind of like <laughs> unleash them, um, and then join us back in August, right? So then as we're preparing for August, we're trying, I'm trying, I'm desperately trying to figure out what it is we're doing, right, all summer. I'm just trying to figure out, like, I know people find it powerful. I know people um, engage more, Um but anytime I was asked, like, what were we doing, I didn't really have words outside of, like, to describe it, outside of people who already knew and were already convinced mm. that it was a powerful space, right? So, like, basically, if you weren't a woman of color who, who had been attending these meetings, like, you had no idea what was popping off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started doing research. And we're not in politics, we're not in religion, we're not in spirituality, right? Like, I'm going through all mm-hmm. the humanities, <laughs> the humanity of it all. <laughs> and what are you finding? You're not in psychology, or not in sociology. What did you find? Political science, nowhere. No. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, uh, I kept digging, and I found this, like, sub- Mm. study called um, cultural trauma yes and it took a couple articles before I could really figure out like what was the original like document that I could go to and really understand this theory and so Hirsch Hirsch and Smith um, developed this paper that really spelled out cultural trauma and it spells out public memory as well Um, so I was just like what are we what are we doing? We're healing. What are we healing from? Well, trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's where I found this article about cultural trauma. Yes. Um, and so, you know, suddenly, like, we have these, like, words that we're playing mm-hmm. with. So it's cultural trauma. And the other word is public memory, right? Mm-hmm. So cultural trauma is where um, a specific event permanently changes the identity of a whole group of people. Mm-hmm. And some of the main examples um, that they came up with were the Holocaust and uh, Hurricane Katrina and how how they were treated after or or not treated (laughs) um, after after the hurricane. So I was just like, okay, so cultural trauma permanently changes the identity of a group of people. I don't think. I, I at least didn't believe that it only um, that was a term that you only could use for these like 
to events. No. I really just mm-hmm. critiqued and said, I think these were people with PhDs who had a lot of literature at, at their disposal, and these two events were momentous, and there's a lot of folks that, you know, did history, did art projects, mm-hmm. right, got their got their diplomas yeah. by, by um, collecting or being part of these, like, documentation of, of these events. Um, so then I thought, well, St. Paul, Philando Castile was a cultural trauma. Absolutely. It, like, changed mm-hmm. the way everyone felt, the way everyone walked through this world, right? Mm-hmm. And there were black folks and people of color who were just, like, really believed they could be next right mm-hmm. like and and that kind of that kind of change doesn't heal overnight right um and then the other term was public memory mm-hmm. so public memory is this whole study about our systems of remembering right what is what do we remember but what i really liked about it was that it, didn't, it said, like, what people choose to remember. And that was really agitational mm. for me because it was just like, that's right. People are making choices on how to remember certain things. Well, and, and I would say also who remembers what, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Who remembers what history, right? Right. And whose history? Whose history, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it goes all the way from, like, journalism mm-hmm. to museums, yeah. right? Like, there's people who devote their whole lives to like creating a museum so that this moment can be remembered. Um, I grew up in Chicago and the DuSable Museum yes. in Chicago was a big deal because here was like a black centered like we will not forget both the successes and the atrocities mm-hmm. of like what happened for our people. Um, their people. My people. Yeah. Um... <laughs> So <laughs> a complicated post-settler colonialism mystery right, 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 people right, right. in the Caribbean. I'm not on the white side. <laughs> is all I'm trying to say. <laughs> that, that's what I might buy. The big R people. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, that. But those were still like verbs mm-hmm. or, or actions. Like there was no person performing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, in public memory, it was an easy, easy, really easy to connect that to policy. Yeah. Like, there are people, even in D.C., who aim to pass legislation that they know is not going to win, right? Like, they know it, but mm-hmm. it is a strategy to invoke a conversation that is not being had, right? Yes. Um, I wish I could think of an example right now, but, like, there's, I'm sure someone will. <laughs> Well, no one. (laughs) Um, But it's to invoke. Oh, there was one in D.C. about um, reparations. Yes. That was it. I don't know who did it, but I know about the story about, like, they introduced a piece of legislation to begin the process of reparations. And it got shut down, sadly. But people were having a conversation about it. And that is a way to, like, inject yourself into the public public memory it's about power it's about how are we using the structures that we have at our disposal to really bring our stories to light yeah 
Um, so how does political, the idea of political healers emerge from this context of cultural trauma and public memory and, and policy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it really came down, like to go back to that moment of like exhaustion. Yes. To go back to that, those moments where we realize like, how do we navigate spaces that won't validate us? And how do we create spaces that will validate us, right? Um, those words are what a political healer navigates through. The, the whole phrase or formula or however um, people really want to <laughs> engage with it is political healers use rituals to bring cultural trauma into public memory. Mm. Right? Like... That's that's the formula, if you will. And there's just a lot of room there to, like, play. But the thing that's so fun is that things like racism, sexism, that feels so big and abstract, and yet there's all these concrete examples, but we can't ever, like, fucking change the thing, right? All of a sudden, the word ritual kind of pulls that on its head. Because what happens if instead of walking into a room saying, we have all been conditioned to be, to, to, to act like a heteronormative masculine white dude, right? Like, yeah. that's, it's like, it's kind of like, okay, now what, right? We um, know that. What do, what do we do? <laughs> what if you went into that same room and said instead, we have accepted a ritual of reenacting masculinity in very toxic ways. And it's racialized and it's gendered. What is the ritual that we're going to invoke and now practice to counteract that? So it became this thing to create. It became something that you could practice with each other, right? Like, Mm -hmm. ritual didn't have to be this, like, everyone let's do yoga Although I think there's some offices that might just like just fucking do some yoga, y'all need to stretch, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but no, but like, what what if we thought about these isms as mm-hmm. practices, and that and that we actually needed to find an alternative practice instead of just naming this exists and we're not that, okay? So what are we? What are we? <laughs> what are we? What are we doing? And this was the the, the term ritual became a mo- a moment of creativity and inspiration for especially for a lot of women of color. I love this. And and you when we were talking earlier, preparing for this, you were talking a little bit about the skills mm-hmm. that women of color bring to this work of political healing and the skillfulness mm-hmm. and the skills and the knowledge and the expertise yes. that women of color bring. So can you tell me a little bit more about those skills that are involved in political healing? Yes. So, um, again, rooted in January, right? Mm-hmm. It A lot of what sparked that conversation and that um, engagement was highlighting emotional labor as real, mm-hmm. as so gendered and racialized that people honestly believe it's a personality thing. Right? Like, she's just so warm. 
or they're just so welcoming or I really just feel seen by them right like these were personality traits rather than a skill than a skill exactly and so then when when we when we make when we conflate it with personalities instead of looking at them as like skills teachable skills two things happen one uh, women of color who often have to engage uh, in what we call emotional tending, if yeah. you will, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, to maintain their their projects, their economy, their home, their family, right? There's just this level of emotional tending that is part of this racist, sexist structure. And where a lot of the exhaustion comes from, like how how do I... You know, like, how do I show up for this so that they'll give me that? Like, there's just a lot of choices that we have to make as women of color. Um, I would argue all of us do this, but women of color being at intersecting identities, like, Mm -hmm. really enhances this skill. Absolutely. So then we don't see it as, if, if we don't, if we refuse to see it as a skill, then we refuse to compensate women of color for this skill. And worst of all, we relinquish accountability for other folks to learn this skill, mm-hmm. right? And and we're not we're not these like limitless vessels of emotional tending, right? Like no. we we got other shit going on too. Like I don't, but it it has been amazing to me um, how often I've had to remind the men in my life that like you are you are requesting a lot of emotional labor from me that I don't have and how foreign that feels to them. They're like, I was just talking to you. It's like, no, you were requesting that I validate your experience, help you navigate a solution (laughs) so that you can come out looking like less racist in this context. (laughs) And that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. That's so much work. Well, and when emotional labor is invisible and devalued and you know, not recognized, then is this thing that my experiences often gets talked about in more like femme circles or women circles, but that is still not fully understood in dominant culture, Mm -hmm. right? It's still expected, Mm -hmm. especially from women of color, Mm -hmm. like you said. Um, And there's still this expectation that women of color will rescue us. Mm-hmm. Like, look at what happened in the last election. Fucking when people, Alabama. <laughs> when people get excited, or like, Oprah's for president, I was like, well, so how are we all going to do this work and not just also, put it all on women of color? I also just want to put in a plug that I really, really, really have a big pet peeve mm-hmm. of folks using the term women of color because they're scared to say black women. Yes. Like, the erasure of black women in Alabama was not okay to me like Mm -hmm. it was all black women (laughs) and they didn't do it for anyone else other than themselves right like they weren't trying to save anyone else except themselves so so i just want to like yes obviously we're all women of color but um but i think like black black women tend to like they're the way they organize the way they show up and show out Mm -hmm. like cannot be understated no at all and so let's talk about that for a minute. How much of how much does anti-blackness also plays into kind of the erasure and the devaluing of kind of this the skill and expertise that black women in particular have around um, around political healing? Really, you know, emotional labor is one skill, but like you describe so much more 
around ritual and around um, yes, creating these moments of public memory and which they've been so amazing at doing here in the US over the past few years with like Black Lives Matter for example, mm. how much how much have we seen black women in leadership being political healers, bringing those skills? Black queer women. Black queer women, yeah. exactly. The <laughs> best, the best, anyways, let me not get it. Yes, <laughs> black queer women. The yeah. best Black Lives Matter chapters are led by black queer women. Um, mm-hmm. I'll stick my foot in that. Um, yeah. So I think like what what has been so exhilarating for me is being able Um, to use Black Lives Matter as the prime example of what political healing looks like. People can have their opinions about tactics or outcomes or all this like bullshit, capitalistic, what is is the product, what is the final stand? Um, But at the end of the day, when, when Philando Castile was murdered... He, there, there needed to be a moment for public mourning. People were really lost. People were really confused. People were terrified. And so as much as people, um, folks want to comment about um, what shutting the highways does, what tactic, how it was used in the civil rights era, like every, every side of the argument at the end of the day this was a ritual yes that brought cultural trauma the the murdering of 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 a black father in front of his daughter mm-hmm. in front of his partner they were bringing it into public memory in that moment you could not help but talk about what happened to philando mm-hmm. um every time those highways got shut yes. uh shut down I'm not going to lie. Sometimes the traffic jams would be so bad. I would, like, get really excited and be like, is this my moment? Like, can I just leave my car here and go to where they're shutting down the highways? And you're like, no, it's just traffic. <laughs> it's just traffic. It was like, oh, damn. Mm-hmm. But there, those, that, that is a prime example of, like, political healing. And, and grief should shut things down, right? Mm-hmm. For me... There's so much vulnerability in having that grief so public and saying, this is not okay. This is not business as usual. And it has been business as usual for too long to kill black folks and to kill black women because often those are not talked about. Right. All the black women are also die yeah, at the end of systemic women. violence and black trans women and, and how people are systemically targeted and killed, mm-hmm. right? And so... Yes, that there was the moment of you need to grieve with us, mm-hmm. or you need to at least acknowledge mm-hmm. that this is happening. You you will not be spared. You will not be spared. You, that's what yeah, I yeah. felt from mm-hmm. those highway shutdowns. You will not be spared yeah. from being reminded that yeah. this happened and that and that we're here to end it. Right. And this needs to be part of public memory. Mm-hmm. This cannot be erased. This cannot be overlooked. Mm-hmm. This is real. Right. And you cannot be, you should not right. be spared. Absolutely. And those moments are really moments of kind of incredible public vulnerability mm. in many ways, mm-hmm. right? Just grief, 
you know, it's been so privatized mm-hmm. um, in dominant culture, in dominant Anglo culture. Grief has become this brie- brief, individualized, and like if you grieve for too long, right, it's almost like a disease. <laughs> Whereas actually, <laughs> I don't know, I was brought up in Italy, and mm-hmm. grief, there's a process and there's a visibility. Like in Sicily, people wear black clothes or black buttons mm-hmm. when somebody dies, and there's a long period of mourning, mm-hmm. right? at least a year of intense mourning and not mm-hmm. functioning that we expect from close people. And that's not how grief plays out here in the U.S. So no, because uh, Lord, Lord have mercy on our capitalism if we actually made time for grieving. Um, that was sarcasm. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I think just the way that we have been taught that it needs to, to happen in closed doors or that mm-hmm. other people's emotions will... Uh, make us too uncomfortable, right? It's a distraction. It's a tangent. It's something that you do over there. Honestly, my <laughs> I would call it gender oppression, right? Yeah. Because like the first the first time I understood gender oppression was when someone said the word um, um, mothering in private is gender oppression, mm-hmm. and that just like. Walk like in my mind, I went through so many moments where people were like honestly mad that my son was acting like a two year old. <laughs> there wasn't even a moment we were in the city council meeting and he was loud. Yeah, I mean, not any louder than typical, but I, the, I, I looked at them and I said, I think we're the adults in the room, so just speak louder. Yes, yeah, like I was not gonna apologize for my son being a son and I wasn't gonna require my brown boy to be like policed or managed in a way that would make other folks more comfortable or like he's not a distraction he's here because of the fucking structural um sexual exclusion of women and mothers like that's why he's here so deal and the lack of structures and support financial support and to have kind of safe and affordable and free actually kind of care mm-hmm. so that you can go to your job. Right. So mm-hmm. when I learned about that, that there was such a thing as like privatized like mothering or mm-hmm. however the phrase is said, it was it's not a difficult leap to to take note of the privatizing of healing. Yes. That that it is inappropriate to be in public and with others when you are grieving when you are mourning and it doesn't even have to be a death it, it's just any trauma mm-hmm. um that that's just something you do with you and yours and like no one else should be a part of that because that's just embarrassing or i don't know I, honestly all the words to characterize public uh, in public displays of emotion mm-hmm. are 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 racialized yes they're mm-hmm. they're just like it you're you're out of control like, how much of that is angry Latina, angry mm-hmm. black woman, right? Like, yeah. um, keep your emotions on check. This, like, over-exaltation of, of cool, calm, and collected. And mm-hmm. it's just like, you're cool, calm, and collected in just the wrong things because you're not seeing this, like... Well, then cool, calm, and collected is not an appropriate response to everything. Right. Because some moments should not... We should not be cool, calm, and collected in the face of murder or in the face of violence or in the face of oppression, right? right. And absolutely, all that, like, 
tone policing and body policing mm -hmm. and adjust your face. It's mm -hmm. so part of kind of both kind of misogyny and anti-blackness mm -hmm. at, at the heart and at racism. Heart yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um. Yeah. Yeah. And so here you are doing this work mm -hmm. of bringing political healers kind of within kind of this beautiful community organizing spaces and really nurturing strategic public vulnerability. That's right. Which is really like <laughs> fucking up, right? Misogyny and white <laughs> supremacy and like, you know, strategic public vulnerability, which is what black women are really good at. Yeah. Yeah, right? I'm really, I'm really grateful for you remembering the words I said earlier because <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm in another world right now. Um, but the, so when I started organizing with women of color, I got really frustrated, honestly offended, and disappointed at all the like sad women of color stories that I was was now witnessing. Mm -hmm. Right, like it, it was almost like I had seen these. But now that I was, like, in this role um, where, like, it could be my leader up there, right? Like, or, or someone that I'm investing in, um, that was really hard for me. So the idea of, like, strategic vulnerability is um, understanding that you're not walking into a space that will validate you. And that is critical. That is a level of, of emotional transparency I don't think our movement gives to, to folks that we ask to share their stories. And so then, if we're asking folks to share their stories, it's because they've been um, invested in in a way where their story connects to a next step. So their, their story is not void of strategy. Their story is not void of a collective their story is not just their own. It is, it, is, it is an example of what many people are going through, right? That that's actually the value of, of the story and lifting things up is... And, you know, I've seen, I've seen um, just a lot of moments where uh, people are sharing things they actually weren't comfortable sharing. And, like, what was that about? Mm -hmm. And where... You know, I honor people's agency. Like they, you share what you want to share, but like, what is the culture that you're bringing into your spaces where people feel too exposed at the end of it, instead of powerful? Yes. Instead of clear. Instead of like sure and rooted in in what they just accomplished, that they shifted people in the room, that no one in there can unhear all the words that they said. Right. Mm. Um, that's that's what I think storytelling should be. Um, I don't think it's always that for folks, especially women of color. Like, there's just this need to display us as, like, beggars, mm. um, pain porn, um, yes. just like, oh, I'm I'm so, like, buried in debt, or, I mean, and it's true. Like, there's... Yeah. But, like, that we have to have the saddest of the saddest stories um, instead of, like, really just being connected to a community that, that the, the leader has identified they connect with, right? And that they're not alone in this experience. Well, and it, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about, it reminded me of what I've heard some of the trans women of color from my own trans community say about, you know, 
It's fine to mourn trans women of color who keep being killed when they're dead, but what about uplifting and celebrating and supporting trans women of color while they're alive, mm. right? That the only legitimate way of existing for certain identities is through pain, through death, through, through violence, obituary. through obituary, <laughs> yeah. and that is that's unacceptable. That is unacceptable, yes. It's offensive. Mm-hmm. It's deeply offensive. It is, um, it, it plays, the saddest part is that those stories, when they get uplifted, the stories of death, that's, there's a double-edged sword to those stories. Yes. Because as much it is, as it is bringing these, these lives taken too soon up to, like, public memory, it, it's also showing a norm like there's a whole other group of people who are just like yeah this happens all the time yeah. right it, it it can breed complacency and so yeah. so I think I think there's there's just as much power in in mourning publicly as there is in celebrating publicly and I think like I think I just think that there is room and space to create these emotional phases in our movement and and I think we need to take it more seriously because it's actually not about like pitching what the next campaign is going to be or like pitching how we're going to fundraise all these monies it's actually like how are you going to guide your group through a set of experiences that that breeds resilience breeds trust breeds collectivity and has this cohort working as a team um, and understanding, like, their strengths and their weaknesses as they move as a unit, right? And so I think the... Um, I think any time a life is lost, like, we should know about it. And there's, there's a way that feeds into some kind of norms of, like, who's worthy of, of, of being taken versus who's worthy of maintaining their life and their comforts there's there's race and gender all over that oh absolutely and ultimately it's worthy about of being in power right mm-hmm. we've seen huge changes both on a city level in minneapolis and paul and state level around kind of more black women and women of color in leadership and kind of um, those kind of public position and what a different ritual that is to see those women uplifted as powerful, right? Mm-hmm. There have been some really um, iconic moments, I would mm-hmm. say, in the last elections about seeing like black women and black trans women being uplifted as political leaders. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's um, there's definitely more women of color running for office. Um, just kind of... <laughs> There's also plenty of women of color who are running mm-hmm. campaigns yes. that are winning, mm-hmm. that often get erased because the candidates. Yes. Um, I, I remember sitting around a, a... We were having drinks at a happy hour, and the there were two women. They, like, toasted to each other. It's like, no more campaigns with dudes, right? Because, like, there's... there's, there's that, talk about emotional labor like Mm -hmm. there is a lot of um abuse that happens in in campaigns especially when there's like a 
a race and gender dynamic between the campaign and the manager and the candidate. We were talking about strategic public vulnerability a little while ago. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then, right, and now yeah. kind of grief can be a moment of public vulnerability. Mm-hmm. But strategic public vulnerability can be much broader, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's like those moments of celebrations, those moments of choice, right? Yeah. Of like, um, and those moments of um, making public what's usually invisible. Yeah. Like how much kind of, you know, for somebody to win a campaign, how much emotional labor and support is there that often falls on the shoulder of um, black women and women of color. So it's mm-hmm. like where there is a disproportionate amount of support yeah. um, that is offered. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gender Stories. Arika and I were having so much fun that there's actually a whole other episode, episode four, that is the continuation of this incredible conversation about what does it mean to be a political healer at the intersection of gender and race. So I hope you will listen to episode four. And as ever, thank you so much for listening.